Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome um, to LSE for today's hybrid event, which forms part of the LSE Festival, People and Change which explores how change affect, how changes affect people and how people affect change. My name is uh, Tim Allen. Um, I'm the director of the Firoz Lauji Institute for Africa and also a professor in development anthropology here at the LSE. And I'm very pleased to be here to welcome uh, our panel um, and our moderator, Luca Tashini who's going to introduce um, the other members of the panel. And today, they will be exploring and critically evaluating climate finance. And I'll now hand over to Luca. Thanks a lot, Ben. Thank you very much. Thank you all for being here. Uh, pleasure to be here and a pleasure to introduce our two panelists, Bogolo Kenevendo and Annette Nakayuven. Um, Bogolo is a global economist and strategy advisor. Um, She's been also serving for the Cabinet Ministry of Investment, Trade and Industry and a specially elected member of the Parliament of Botswana. And she's also an Africa director and special advisor of the UNFI uh, level climate champion team. And she's also a member of the WEF, the World Economic Forum. And Annette, uh, she's a climate change specialist at the International uh, Institute for Environmental and Development. Most of you probably know him as IIED. Um, she worked for a number of different uh, regional agencies in Eastern and Central Africa and international organizations. And prior to joining IAD, uh, she was a lecturer in the Department of Development Studies at Makerere University in Kampala. So I would like to start with a brief uh, housekeeping um, uh, information. So for those of you that are on Twitters, uh, uh, please uh, use the hashtag, uh, hashtag LSE Festival. This is the today's event, uh, hashtag the formal one. I would like also to ask you, please put your phones on silent. Um, I would like uh, you to not disrupt the event. Uh, the event is uh, being recorded um, and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical uh, difficulties. As usual, there will be the chance for you to uh, ask questions to our panelists, to both Annette and Bogolo. Uh, for the online audience, uh, you can submit your questions using the Q&A feature. Please, where possible, include your name and affiliation. And for those of you here in the theater, I will let you know uh, when we will open the floor for questions. So I would like to ask you, please raise your hand. Uh, there is a microphone roving around. And again, please state your name and affiliation. And I will try to ensure a, a wide range of questions, both from online and in the audience. OK, so I have a set of questions. So if it's OK with our panelists, I would like maybe to kick off with you, Bogolo. So you know, as a former cabinet minister and a UNI-level climate champion, um, I would like to know if you can share your reflections about uh, the past COP27. Did the conference give you hope that uh, we can make positive changes? We've been talking about changes, so do you think that the COP27 
provide some hope for positive changes before it's actually too late for climate crisis to involve with us? Right, well, uh, good afternoon everyone and uh, thank you uh, Luca and uh, everyone for having us. Um, I think that uh, there were good signals coming out of uh, COP27. Uh, first, I think the road to COP27 was uh, um, different, uh, particularly for a lot of African uh, participants. So, um, the Egyptian presidency uh, started COP27 with this moniker of uh, an African COP, uh, of a development COP, and uh, then you know, we had to figure out what that actually meant, and we would ask them quite often, what does that actually mean uh, for Africans? And uh, so going to COP, the conversation was, how do Africans show up at, uh, at COP? How do they lead their narrative on issues that they care for? And then um, what is the call to action for the world to join in uh, uh, delivering on the priority areas for the continent on climate action? So um, it was great to see some of those issues uh, coming up at uh, COP27. So the signals for change or uh, for some sort of progress uh, for us at uh, COP was uh, this new strengthened narrative around um, uh, climate positive development and what a green development pathway means for the continent. And most recently we've had uh, uh, President Ruto follow on uh, the, um, the push that happened to us COP27. And then of course having the loss and damage uh, on the agenda, loss and damage fund uh, on the agenda. Uh, after many discussions, uh, this was also uh, a very good signal to that at least we are recognizing some of the issues uh, that need to be dealt with. Don't ask me how things are going at, at uh, Bonn at the moment. Um, but uh, the other issue was a very strengthened, um, not just narrative, but action, particularly from non-state actors, uh, around adaptation and resilience. And I think this uh, really mattered particularly for the continent and developing countries because uh, adaptation and resilience is, is a big issue. Um, currently, African countries are financing adaptation and resilience through debt instruments and non-concessional lending. And uh, they've become a big burden on uh, um, uh, fiscals and other things uh, in, in the continent. So we've now morphed into the space of uh, climate action and what uh, the financial infrastructure actually means and uh, we are seeing the combination of all those conversations and signals coming out of COP27 being uh, uh, pushed through the Paris uh, summit that's about to happen, the uh, New Partnerships for Finance, I think it's called summit, and then of course later on uh, the Africa Climate Action Summit and many others um, that are really based around the key issues that were pushed, including MDB reform. Thanks a lot. And do you think that those conversations and initiatives are actually coming to fruition? Uh, do you think that at the moment we have um, existing climate finance institutions are sufficient and uh, enough actually to develop that green um, development uh, program that you, they discussed during COP? So I'm, a, I'm an optimist. Okay. 
but unconsciously so, <laughs> uh, because obviously we have the history around, uh, you know, big pledges being made and then no one yeah. following up or uh, that we come to an agreement and it takes long to establish funds. And I think this is where the LMD is finding itself uh, stuck on. Um, but I feel like there is a re-energized um, uh, sentiment around the need for us to really act because we know that there is no other planet and uh, that everybody needs to take a responsibility for uh, climate action um, if we are to reach any of our long-term climate goals. Uh, but it is still uh, quite uh, differentiated. I mean, there are different arguments at the moment of who really needs to be taking responsibility. How do we take responsibility? But um, I am hopeful uh, that the issues we will have, particularly around unlocking finance um, in Paris, uh, will help to move the needle further. Because action, particularly in developing countries, really will be uh, moved through unlocking of uh, green yeah. uh, finance. Thanks a lot. Annette, what's your opinion? Do you think that at the moment uh, the existing climate finance institutions are sufficient or do you think they need to be reformed, improved, expanded, especially in, in the context of adaptation and resilience? <laughs> Thank you. Lucas, could the mix of all those things? <laughs> yeah, um, I'd like to share the optimism. Um, Bogolo's optimism of things can get better, but I want you to speak about how disconnected the financial climate finance architecture is to the local African needs. There is a missing middle where, for example, we it's it's good to have a bigger resource envelope for climate finance, but what are we doing? with already available finance? Is it doing what it is supposed to do? Are we achieving what we are supposed to achieve? Because um, when you look at how the climate architecture is, is organized, you will find that it's so alienating for national governments in Africa, subnational governments, and then local level. Yet we know that climate action takes place at local level. This is where the challenge is. But rarely do you find that linkage. So how do we create a linkage? How do we create these links in the system, in the climate finance system, the value chain? Who are these actors? How are they linked? Where are the disconnections? How can we fix those connections to ensure that climate finance actually goes down to do what it is supposed to do, to build resilience, to build, um, to, to, to support people to cope better with the changing environment. So to me, the challenge I see with climate finance is in how it is structured. The structure of climate finance does not support climate action at local level. There is a disconnect. So however much we improve, we increase the amount of money we have for climate finance, but when we have not solved that disconnect to ensure that actually subnational level actors, local level actors participate in making decisions about climate finance, I don't think we stand a chance of achieving resilience and adaptation. But also secondly, um, 
you talked about initiatives like that question had an issue uh, um, an aspect of which initiatives do you look at i think to me because climate action takes place at local level so any interventions that are going to cause change must involve local communities and how do we do that when climate change is so disconnected from these local levels there are lots of challenges transparency accountability and all that and at all levels not only at international level even at national level because statistics show us that about only 18 percent of climate finance reaches ldc's and out of that only 10 eight goes to local level so already that shows there is a problem so how do we solve that problem even before we think about increasing the resource in the law i i like a lot to a lot the way you actually are phrasing that so climate action happens locally so change actually happens locally right so you, you mentioned already, um, you are hinting what's needed, but again, to reduce that disconnect, actually to create a connection, do you think is more of a, there's more need in terms of institutions or different forms of climate finance? Do you have a, a view on that? Like, as, as in forms, I mean, structure of financial agreements that are involving local uh, authorities or actually even people on the ground. And, you know, in my already, Imagination I'm already thinking in terms of credits. There's a lot of conversation about offset credits, carbon credits that in principle should be issued uh, by you know local communities. Do you think that is a possible form of a financial instrument that could help climate action to happen locally? Do you have a view on that? I think um, for climate action to support um, local response will need to shift <clears throat> a lot of power back to the communities in terms of making decisions on what is the priority what are the climate risks what are how can you can they be supported to co-create mm -hmm. response options that work for their contexts um, i think it's about what works where homogenizing africa remains a challenge. What can work in Botswana will not work in Uganda because these are very different contexts. And so I think these funding uh, mechanism or instruments are going to be looking at contexts in Africa, where are we working interventions, what works in Uganda, and then you design funding models that fit Uganda's context, patient, flexible funding schemes that uh, developing countries can handle. For example, um, locally led adaptation initiatives. If, for example, um, we could, uh, climate financing could support such initiatives, devolving funds to local levels to ensure that climate action is, <clears throat> is starts from the bottom, then moving up. But currently, the funding architecture money is up somewhere up there and big guys can only have access to that money and then uh, the chain continues until when some drops to local level so i don't know what Bokolo can add to that but in terms of 
how the local level, how local communities can mobilize, can be part of this big voice to influence, to unlock, to unblock climate finance. Right. But I think that she started a very important uh, conversation around um, the need to reform the international green financial infrastructure. So I think where we sit at the moment is uh, we have two choices. It's either we create a new, innovative, efficient, equitable uh, <laughs> green financial infrastructure, or uh, we reform, uh, drastically reform uh, the, the current um, uh, infrastructure, and particularly around MDBs and how we work on credit enhancement uh, through MDBs and um, crowding in private sector financing. And uh, that is uh, really where the issue is, and I, one of the stats that she mentioned around uh, that the continent only attracts about 18% of uh, general uh, green capital, even though it's been exponentially growing, yeah. there's clearly a bias in the monetary uh, system and the financial system um, that uh, needs to be dealt with. And, you know, the, the issues around um, what, one of the challenges that we keep hearing often, and I think this reflects to communities, is that there is no pipeline of projects to invest in to allow for finance to flow to communities and to uh, developing countries. And we know it's not true. There are projects. Projects exist, but they are not packaged in a way uh, that, um, say, uh, um, London-based... London-based uh, uh, actors would respond to. So there is a uh, project origination problem, packaging of project uh, at uh, inception that speaks to uh, the kind of uh, uh, investor profile that we have um, in London or in New York and, and so forth. And, you know, it, they, we need to challenge the way that the market thinks about developing countries. That includes not only risk as we know it, but also perception of risk yeah. uh, in developing uh, markets. And we see that every time a community uh, tries to set up, say, a, a carbon uh, project, First, there are issues of verification. Yeah. Then there are issues of uh, startup investment yeah. in just getting the, the project going because, well, there is high risk uh, in these communities. There's political risk. Uh, there's a, um, a product, uh, uh, the risk of that the project will not finish. And we know from experience through Zim Bank, from AFDB and others that are actual players in Africa, that the risk is much lower than it is perceived to be in London. Yeah. So it's, do you think, it's, what, what does that reflect? The typical traditional perception of geopolitical and regional type it's of It's geopolitical risk? issues, um, but it's also just, I find that there is a lack of appetite right. to actually invest in uh, learning how things work in other markets. Just uh, two weeks ago, there was the Net Zero Summit here in London and um, had a conversation with uh, uh, somebody who manages uh, large pension funds and asked him which emerging markets they invest in. And he said, no, none. None because uh, we do not work with anybody in those markets. How are you going to work with people in those markets if you don't even try? And he said, no, because uh, political risk is too high. Yeah. Where? Yeah. 
let's be specific. Where is the political risk too high? Botswana is very stable. The governance is proven, longest running democracy in the continent. And yet when you look at the uh, investment attraction in the continent alone, regardless of where capital comes from, it's very low. So there is nothing to do specifically with the fact that there we are politically higher risk, but just biases in decision making against African countries maybe, uh, but I think it's generally around uh, developing markets, less Asia. Right. Can I go back to this idea of uh, reforming and what's needed uh, to be reformed or perhaps even elaborate on what is the new type of agent, if not even agencies that are needed actually to, you know, not necessarily stimulate, but finally actually bring channel through that type of investment that is truly needed uh, and avoid that bias that typically is the typical bias that you just described so far. So I think that the institutions are there. Um, uh, Afrixim does business in, in Africa. I'll, I'll keep going back and I know uh, not homogeneous, but uh, for the simplicity, um, so Afrixim does business in the continent and they have invested in some spaces and projects that are deemed to be high risk yeah. and yet they have very low uh, default rates. Um, and very proven high uh, returns on investment. Uh, AFDB, which uh, you know is also um, investing heavily in the continent, not only for public sector-led projects, but also private sector uh, as well. I think that institutions around the world need to create um, uh, a risk-sharing profile. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know there's a conversation at the moment around GEMS where uh, there would be a, a risk sharing, uh, data sharing, risk sharing space um, where, you know, developing markets, uh, financial players can share exactly what the real default rates look like or political threat or any, um, any of that sort. And then we know that within the, the World Bank um, and uh, IMF and others, um, there has been space uh, to stimulate private sector um, yeah. players. So we could revise and reform, say, policy-based uh, guarantees. And now there's a conversation around introducing FX uh, guarantees uh, to lessen the risk associated with uh, exchange rates and um, allow private sector to play in that space. And, and then another one is that uh, the our MDBs and uh, uh, some uh, uh, supported IFIs shouldn't behave like commercial players. Where they start, uh, they start projects. Um, they should be aiming to distribute those projects to the private sector to allow uh, the uh, capital spread across many projects and not just be um, um, have uh, finance be stuck in one project because it is commercially viable. Where things are commercially viable, they should be moving on. And I know that this is a whole other conversation yeah. that we can have. I suspect you know, <laughs> you're putting this one back. I'm not really know, very know. differently. I know, we, we, we've had these uh, uh, very long discussions, but I, I think it, there is a, something to say here about origination to distribute yeah. instead of origination to hold. And there are many other reforms that we can speak to uh, that are specific to uh, the MDB space. And one of them is, recognizing that um, climate finance should be extra concessional mm -hmm. and should include uh, middle-income countries. 
And uh, because the, the threat for climate doesn't think, oh, but you are now middle income. Um, the, the issue remains the same, that African countries are financing adaptation and resilience through debt instruments. Mm -hmm. And they shouldn't have to, because as we all know, the argument is we don't cause this problem. Why must we uh, finance it and not be able to finance education at the same time? So the proposal on the table is that uh, the extra concessionality of uh, uh, MDB finance should be around 1.5%. Yeah. which reflects uh, the 1.5 degrees. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks a lot. Annette, do you have actually a view on what type of, again, agency or uh, agent, the reform that you think are actually necessary, but in particular, again, to stimulate more action locally on the ground? What do you think uh, um, is working? And also going back to what you were actually saying earlier, I would be very keen to hear if you have some lessons in terms of what really did not work. You were talking about we need to use a lot of different elements that work in different regions or different states. Anything that actually never really truly works and cannot work across the continent. Yeah, um, I think, uh, yeah, that's quite um, a broad one. But I want to go back to what Bogolo said, talked about political risk and the bias that it's associated with. I really want to say that there is some truth in a claim that there is political risk in most of African countries. Yeah, they are very stable countries like Botswana and a couple of those, but the truth is, yeah, there could be some issues. So really this um, climate finance innovation system is a complex one. So you find that there are challenges at all levels, challenges that have to be navigated, and you you, you don't find angels and devils. Uh, there, there's a mixture of everything everywhere. So it's that complex step that we have to have at the back of our mind. Um, for me, uh, speaking about reforms, I really want to strongly believe that we can find innovative ways of ensuring that climate response is informed by the people that are affected most, that they contribute to designing adaptation actions, that their voices are part of decision-making processes at, at local level. Uh, there are these approaches like whole of government, whole of society approach where people, different um, categories, different sets of people contribute to decision-making from bottom up. But of course, this really requires time and a lot of investment in terms of time, sometimes project life cycles don't permit. Um, there's a lot of learning and, and, and testing things out. And um, you also asked me about what can't work everywhere. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, in Uganda, uh, for example, um, the innovation bookstore of um, uh, climate finance. Um, I have read reports, uh, pub published papers, where they give 100% commendation for the outcome of those interventions. But the truth is, the reality is so different from what published papers say. So to me, this brings in the question like, do we learn anything from these interventions? Do we ever learn? And if we 
we don't learn. So when are we ever going to get it right in terms of ensuring that actually climate response does what it is supposed to do to increase um, capability to adapt and to be resilient economies. So evaluation of, of, you know, of interventions, the learning that takes place, who's, who, write, who, who, frames these, who frames these learnings, who shares the learning and who's learning, who's learning and who shares the learning. So if we distort, for example, the lessons from our previous interventions, so how is it going to inform the future? Because the truth with climate change is we are going to get things wrong because nobody knows with ultimate precision what the future holds because of course it's a changing environment, it's a changing world. But what is important is, are we learning as we go so that we can drop those things that don't work, we can remodel, we can co-create, we can co-design with communities. I think to me those reforms work. But also when you look at carbon credits, um, for example, that have been applied in Africa, in most of Africa, voluntary carbon credits, uh, voluntary carbon credits, you will find they are so unreliable because uh, these multinational companies, uh, it really just speaks about their willingness to invest in activities that improve their environment, sociability, governance. If they don't feel so much like that, they will not pay the money and that is where most of African uh, carbon finance, big part of it came from, very unreliable. <coughs> but also, I don't know which lessons we learned from earlier initiatives like the PACE, Payment for Ecosystem Services, how well did it do? But I remember what I knew from my work back then was that the cost of production at the supply side was higher the, the, the money that came in, people keeping those forests and all that. So it wasn't sort of profitable for farmers. And so it's a host of all complex issues uh, around that really. Thanks a lot. Can I give a quick example? Of course, um, So around the concept of uh, bringing in communities and different private uh, sector players and uh, if there are any models uh, to look at. Uh, the reason why I'm, in, um, I'm optimistic is because we actually see that there are pockets of innovation um, happening. And um, one of them is called uh, a Vumbusi Fund. Mm -hmm. And um, I was just looking, looking through my phone trying to find these uh, notes. But they have done, uh, they have created a land restoration and agroforestry fund and a project that will operate in 34 uh, African countries. And um, the model that they have used is, uh, yes, there's a guarantee, but uh, philanthropic funding, funding is leading this. Uh, and then governments are involved, but in particular, uh, they are working with communities and even smallholder farmers. Uh, to get the project off the ground. And um, uh, they have a very ambitious uh, target of uh, exactly how much they need uh, financially. But we've started to see a lot of movement around uh, Vumbusi. So if you're looking for the project, it's called the AFR 100, uh, co-sponsored by uh, NAPID and the AU and uh, WRI. And um, 
there is a third element to that innovation, which we which uh, reflects to the participation in the carbon credit um, yeah. space. And I think um, just the model of how they've come up with uh, Vumbusi itself, it's something uh, to look at because there's MDB catalyzing a, a private sector financing, but there's also philanthropic that is there acting as grant to enable the participation of communities in a project uh, that is going to restore thousands of acres of hectares of land in the continent. So it's not only about restoring the land, there's agricultural <coughs> aspects in there, and then there's carbon credits, so different layers of participation in the market. So, and do you think uh, this could be, going back to this idea of a possible instrument, financial instruments, do you think that actually carbon credit offsets uh, could play a bigger role going forward, uh, given the demand that is probably coming from private actors that need to somehow decarbonize, especially in developed countries. Uh, and is the fund that you just uh, mentioned the only form that actually guarantees a close connection with the local community? or Because if we're going back to this idea of scalability, right? Mm -hmm. I suspect that as soon as you have to deal with the local communities scale potentially can become an issue right so how to how to speed it up so it's not the only project mm -hmm. there's several yeah, um, sure. in the continent but also some in indonesia and the asian markets uh, where you see a, a trilateral participation from financial players um, but i thought the Vumbuzi one would be a good example to give because they have over 34 African countries and have the participation of smallholder uh, farmers starting with five trees. So I think that that works towards some form of inclusivity. So I um, am a believer in the uh, carbon market space. There are two issues at the moment around um, integrity and quality of credits. Uh, integrity of both the producer and the buyer. Um, well, what actually is uh, greenwashing uh, related to African credits and others? Um, you know, how do we ensure the, the quality is, is the same? The issues of land use uh, while working on a, a carbon project, uh, all issues that we have to deal with at the moment. But the one question that I keep asking uh, ICBCM and um, uh, VCMI and others in this space, uh, gold standard that have been working in this, is exactly what determines quality of a credit and I think we need to have that conversation uh, particularly when it comes to nature asset credits and uh, old growth forests because this is where we hit a real snag when um, the market recognizes additionality yeah. and I've said the only reason the market recognizes additionality is because the market was created uh, in a European setting and uh, didn't particularly think about uh, old growth uh, forests or uh, long-standing nature assets that have already been uh, doing the work that we need new forests to be doing. So we need to think about uh, though that asset um, class, but we also need to think about the biodiversity that is included in that asset class. So does quality is quality reflective of the um, 
the the additional benefits associated with an asset or it's only thinking about the credit itself yeah. which then brings us to another uh, subject matter or a, a product of should we start thinking about biodiversity credits or should we also start thinking about resilience credits uh, where um, some energy projects go beyond mitigation but start to get into the adaptation and resilience space. So we start to really unpack this issue of quality and uh, the ripple effects um, and co-benefits it generates in the community. Thanks a lot. Annette, I'm going to ask you the last question and maybe you open the floor to uh, the audience. Um, again, related to um, this evolution of uh, credits. So we, you mentioned payment for ecosystems. Uh, so we're trying to actually put a price on something that is related to uh, ecosystems. That would, there is a relatively long-ish story about using avoided deforestation, right, right plus in Africa and um, also other, other continents, especially South America. And now we're going towards uh, biodiversity, even jumping basically from credits to biodiversity. And you mentioned about lesson to be learned. What, what, is there anything that we learn that we shouldn't probably uh, do, especially in the context of biodiversity, where quality becomes even potentially a bigger issue? We don't have, as of yet, a clear definition of what is biodiversity. Anything that we can try to stay away from in terms of lesson learned from the credit markets uh, on offset credit so far in African continent. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. I think um, for biodiversity, uh, maybe the precaution should be about on farm, there is on farm and then off farm, uh, the diversity of biodiversity itself and where biodiversity is found. Um, land ownership issues in Africa and how that can actually trigger another host of challenges like land grabbing because of uh, shaky regulation and frameworks in Africa. So for me, I would be cautious of moving from uh, carbon credit to biodiversity credit. I would be very cautious about such things like how can how might it trigger other challenges if, for example, we, we looked at land landowners, brothers, those that don't have land, and those who have money and can buy off land and then making people landless. So I understand. Yeah. So that's probably something that we should. There's already, I think, an issue like that in Scotland already, where uh, yeah, because there is restoration of uh, peatlands and basically creating land scarcity. Thanks a lot. So perhaps we can open the floor to some of the questions. Uh, maybe from, uh, have you got already a few questions? Okay, and is the mic, okay, perfect. Could you please raise your hand if you have questions and again, state your name and affiliation and uh, why you may be thinking about a question. Maybe should we start with one 
uh, online, if you don't mind. The first question is from Banu Deer, and the question is, um, the progress at COP27 appears to have been undermined by the command that the fossil fuel agenda has for COP28. How do we get things back on track for real, for real benefit to African nations in the future? Should we take several? Um, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a, and in the meantime, if you can, please just raise your hand. Thank you. Next question is, um, how could the climate vulnerable and conflict prone countries in the Horn of Africa help to attract capital investments in green infrastructure? Should we go for our third one, maybe? Yes. Yeah. And the third one is, um, how do you think accreditation requirements by primary climate finance mechanisms, such as the Green Climate Fund or the Global Environment Facility, affects access to local actors? Thank you. That's a very good question. Yeah. Um, dealing with that. Should I go ahead? Yeah, please. Okay. So uh, the GCF and Jeff at the moment are being challenged for being very unresponsible. Uh, and um, there's a, a community project that uh, I've been uh, uh, following for a while now. They have submitted uh, their request um, 2018, and they still haven't received their financing. I mean, with this just speaks to how inefficient uh, some of our adaptation uh, funds are, and uh, they are missing the mark in terms of delivering on the roles that they were supposed to, to deliver. Um, while G, uh, GCF and GFR um, examples on the inefficient uh, players that were created, I think we can also think about CIF, the Climate Investment Funds, uh, and how more efficient they have proven to be because they work with several MDB players around the world and they run disbursements through AFDB and others uh, in, in the continent that are much closer to projects. And I think in order to really make sure that you reach communities, it's best that you have local financial players accreditation who are much closer to the projects than uh, trying to run something out of South Korea. Uh, which, first of all, it's very far. But I know that uh, GCF in particular are planning on opening um, an office in, uh, in somewhere. <laughs> I almost said it, in somewhere in the continent. Um, so we think, we hope, or we're hopeful that that will uh, improve the efficiency. But then there's just a general need to reform the process of submission and evaluation because it takes too long. And then for progress, uh, for it to not be undermined, um, I think the bond conversations at the moment are actually reinvigorating some of the, those progress points. Uh, L&D um, adaptation, so the Shamal Sheikh adaptation agenda, um, and then uh, issues around uh, climate positive uh, development. Obviously, things are not going well at the moment. There's no agreement on the agenda. We know that. But I think the right issues are back on the table. And um, just because those right issues are back on the table doesn't also mean that we shouldn't really be looking at the uh, issue of oil and gas. And also discuss if the oil and gas companies really should be at the table. 
do we think that we can make progress on uh, uh, climate action if they are not at the table? Is it better for them not to be at the table or is it better to have them at the table so that we can challenge uh, the status quo? And I would like to leave that one quite open-ended. Um, open on the Horn of Africa, uh, I don't think it's just the Horn of Africa. Last year we had a, a, a test case out of South Sudan um, of, uh, you know, many countries are submitting the NDCs. Some of them are contributed to through communities. But where, what happens when there are no governments submitting NDCs or active governments submitting these NDCs through community engagement where there are no communities that are uh, in a stable uh, position? And... Um, it's a really tough environment to deal with. I know that there are some uh, crisis management groups at the moment that I, non-state actor, that I'm engaging on this process trying to create community-specific uh, projects to respond to uh, crisis uh, uh, spaces, countries, communities. Yeah, for me, um, I think I'll start with the third question, how accreditation affects local actors. It's really um, a very important question. And um, When you look at GF, GCF, for example, I think it's about only four uh, organization actors in Africa that qualify for that. Uh, and when you look at, for example, um, projects that can be uh, supported by multilateral development banks, they are unlikely to be smaller projects at community level. They are looking at projects that really have greater impact at scale. So you will find that still smaller actors at sub-national level especially and local level still can't access climate finance. So that is what I talked about, that missing needle, connecting sub-national actors and local actors to climate finance. That accreditation process, the qualification process, the criteria, what is needed to qualify for that funding, most of these subnational and local actors don't have that. And I think it's important that we um, raise our voices wherever we can to, to see that climate finance, there are packages that are patient flexible to, uh, to support smaller actors that may not have bigger projects, very big projects, but have impactful projects at smaller scale. Um, about the Horn of Africa, um, I think like Bogoro said, <clears throat> when you have instability, it does not only affect climate planning, because I think where we are moving now, we are moving towards integrating climate into national planning and, and everything, embedding climate into national planning. That's what I think most of Africa are looking at. So when you have political instability, definitely that presents a political risk, and not only for climate action, but for every other thing. So that becomes really uh, difficult. Annette, can I ask you a question and then I'll come, uh, I'll but very quickly. Mm. Uh, again, forms of instruments. Do you think that middle space can actually be populated or help to be populated via insurance instruments? So if there is an insurance that actually facilitate or reduce any sort of perceived, as uh, we were discussing earlier, risk uh, from middle and small potential credit providers. Do you think actually that middle space could be actually 
becomes bolder. Uh, do you think there is actually a role for insurer to help a small offset provider to get to that level of uh, um, basically supplying that offset? I'll probably answer that um, while giving an example of a, pro mm -hmm. uh, a project that IID is doing. It's called Lifeware, uh, Less Developed Countries Effective uh, Initiative for Effective Adaptation and Resilience. So uh, in that, LDCs have an ambitious agenda of driving climate action for a resilient future. And everything is, is done by them with IID supports in terms of coordination, but with the hope that in the future, maybe five years, they will take over everything. Yeah. They will take up um, the management of that, that fund. And many uh, governments are putting money into that initiative. So uh, what they are doing is, for example, to deliver funds, it's, it's difficult. Sometimes you can't deliver money directly to subnational and local levels. So what we do, we, they identify, countries identify fund uh, management kind of delivery mechanisms through that, right. yeah, that can support with channeling finances that have higher uh, due diligence and compliance to uh, at least standards because that is also important to adhere to standards and reduce yeah. really risk. So yeah, insurance could be some of, yeah, Something one of that, yeah, that could actually help. Thank you so much. If you could please just state your name and affiliation. Thank you. Does this work automatically? Uh, there's also people at, uh, yes, it's working. Okay, sorry everyone. Um, I'm Julius, I'm a postgraduate student here. Thank you first of all for the helpful conversation. Um, I'm an economics and finance amateur because it's only at the margins of my studies. But I kept wondering, as you were talking about different levels of participation, um, different forms of sustainability, um, I kept wondering about how you have most of the finance now, or most of the actors which are now determining green finance are sitting within the major 90 companies of the world um, which are driving pollution and like companies like Shell um, offset carbon credits to a degree that they theoretically own a tenth of land surface on the planet. And I thought about, um, if we're thinking now about financing climate change, does that mean we would have to think about everything else than financing in the first place? And then that the financing aspect would come from repairing our ideas of who can own how much in the world? If you think to convert everything in land is a very good question. Uh, while you think about it, any other questions? Yes, please, could you, can we also pick up, like, collect a few more? Yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> yes. Hi, is that working? Yeah. Yes. Um, I'm Sasha Abraham from the Climate Change Committee, so I had two brief questions. The first was when you're talking about perception of risk in the continent, which actors do you think are well-placed to address those misconceptions? So who should be talking about it more and who's likely to have that influence? And then secondly, looking at actual risk, do you feel like there are adequate spaces for investors and product developers to come together to talk about kind of risk elements outside of political risk that could actually have practical steps that could lower the cost of capital? Because it sometimes feels like there are direct conversations on that happening. Thank you so much. And then we get uh, one more there, please. Thank you. Hi, I'm Zainab Imran. I'm studying development management here. 
My question is on climate financing. Um, we're aware that there are new instruments uh, which are coming up to help the marginalized communities access these funds. However, we know that they actually don't reach them. So I just wanted to know which instrument you think is most useful um, in directing those funds towards the marginalized communities. Uh, for example, in Indonesia, you have Green Sukuks now, um, the Islamic financing, which, uh, which is very popular now in, in, in that country. So which instrument do you think is most helpful in reaching marginalized communities, particularly in Africa and Asia? You can address them all. You can address the ones that you think are. <laughs> All right. And I would um, like also to pick a few more questions if possible. Thank you. Yeah. So let me start with uh, the risk discussion. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think the problem was I, I used an acronym. So it's uh, the Global Emerging Markets um, uh, Database Consortium uh, that is uh, looking at uh, uh, risk and pulling uh, credit default data across different MDBs and uh, um, IFIs and DFIs uh, for investment. And um, so we have put that forward as a proposal to really strengthen or really deal with those issues around uh, perceived risk over and above uh, just political, um, but specifically really looking at uh, default uh, rates here. And then uh, for adaptation, in particular, uh, common databases already uh, exist of climate, um, but you know there's been some hesitate, hesitation, uh, particularly from um, uh, private financiers to invest in adaptation in, in the continent. Uh, but uh, the Global Emerging Markets Risk Database uh, Consortium would deal with uh, almost all uh, of the issues around risk, and then. On structural influence, I was uh, uh, trying to find for you, for example, uh, the AFDB has put forward uh, very detailed proposals of how they can deal with uh, uh, some of those fears um, from other players and um, some of the uh, issues that they've put forward, uh, of course, it's uh, like uh, MDB and SDR-backed uh, bonds and uh, SDR recycling uh, through uh, AFDB. At the moment, we know that there's a consideration of a hundred million, hundred billion dollars uh, recycling uh, through AFDB, and uh, there's the hybrid capital mechanism that is also uh, currently under review. And uh, um, then thinking about how ODA, that is climate specific, uh, could be channeled for commercial commercial adaptation really, not, not fully commercial, um, but for adaptation uh, projects within the continent through Afrexim, Bank, uh, AFC, um, uh, uh, AFDB and others. The Afrexim Bank actually recently announced that they will have a flagship program uh, financed through by other international IFIs um, of uh, close to $300 million uh, in Kenya for adaptation specifically. And then hopefully this will become uh, a project that is scale scalable across uh, the continent. Thank you. And then I'll leave the yeah, land yeah. one and yeah. community to you. I, I, um, the first one you mentioned, do you want to, to ask your question again, please? Can you have the, like a very short 
brief version of your question. There's the gentleman at the gentleman, back. Gentleman at the back. That's a, yeah. um, I think in one line it would be, do we have to think about the conditions that make up financing climate change before we... The actual financing mechanisms. Think about what first? Do we, sorry. do we have to think about the conditions that make up climate change first before we think about the actual mechanisms of financing? I think we, we already know uh, what are the conditions for the climate change that we need to solve. At the moment, we're trying actually to find mechanisms that allow us to get to the, to the solution, basically to reduce, in a way, consumption. Your point was about fossil fuels, right? Yeah. To reduce, basically, consumptions of fossil fuels. And here is about um, this, this plenty of different options, one of which is actually uh, reducing emission via uh, other offsets, and that's that's the, that's the point of the conversation about credit. We can maybe just take that uh, uh, offline if you don't mind. Um, do you want to maybe yeah. tackle the last one, please? Yeah. Thank you. Our last question on, on, on instruments that can be used to deliver climate finance. Yeah, um, I think it's important for us to think about climate finance delivery mechanisms that um, that can work for different countries, but which climate finance? Because already we have seen that a lot of it comes somewhere, it doesn't come to the local level. So we have also to solve that problem of ensuring that at least 70% of climate finance actually goes to the local level. Because even when we come up with instruments, instruments to implement what? Because there is so little that goes into doing the actual work. So I think there is also a problem there. But back to that question that you asked, I think devolved climate financing has worked in countries like Kenya, where um, climate finance is embedded in national planning from to local level, um, money that comes into government and, and other different uh, avenues is channeled into the country's national, uh, national planning process and national systems using Kenyan systems and Kenyan processes to ensure that the priorities are informed by the people, by the local people at the lowest level and then plans move up to national level. They start from local level and moving up to national level. So devolving decision making on climate action would be one way of doing it. So maybe also something to consider for your uh, research is around um, the transparency framework. Um, as uh, we're pondering a reform of the transparency framework under UNFCCC and how countries disclose their NDCs, um, should it be clear what part uh, or contribution of the NDCs was done by communities? Because at the moment, the challenge that has been put to us, the transparency framework, is um, to create space for the private sector and then to ensure that their investment plans that accompany NDCs so that there is much better understanding of what the needs are uh, both on the mitigation side and adaptation side. So I would recommend that uh, you check that and then maybe come up with a recommendation of exactly how uh, that um, could bring in communities and um, could change the financial flows. Thanks a lot. And if you allow me, just uh, one last question. Thank you so much.
Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, I'm Rafael Jan Sultanov. I'm a Chinese scholar from Kazakhstan, studying here political economy of late development. One of um, one of the professors shared with me with us an article about scaling solar. It was a project in Africa where the World Bank kind of intervened and actually almost undermined the the efforts to install more solar panels in 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 Africa. It was kind of a classic case of overselling. So like trying to make like trying to like trying to hide the costs and uh, make solar like solar panels more appealing than they, than they are. So my question is this: Are we not seeing this trend where uh, climate change uh, solutions have been oversold in terms of like trying not to demonstrate the uh, uh, side effects or the true costs? Because I think a better strategy would like would like would be like everything has a positive side and a negative side, and so would it be not fairer to demonstrate that uh, climate change solutions yes they are they are necessary but they are not necessarily without flaws and and we need to kind of to keep that in mind as well and that would be kind of a fairer presentation of what our choices are. Is this the Zambia case? Uh, I, th I, don't, I don't remember, actually. I think it I is. Remember. I think it is. Um, the, the real cost of solar in the continent is based on that a lot of the panels are still imported. Uh, then it brings in a, an issue of um, uh, greening industrialization, actually having industrialization policies and then uh, working on the AFCFTA and investment within the AFCFTA. And um, uh, I could go into that whole space uh, separately, but um, I think in order for us to have um, effective rollout of uh, solar uh, as a solution in the continent, manufacturing needs to happen in the continent. And uh, similarly, with all the other critical minerals, I'm opening another can of worms, um, but with uh, all the other critical minerals that are needed for the transition, I think we need to have a very clear and deliberate industrial industrialization and value chain development plan um, for it to not only work for the world, but to ensure that there's development that happens in the continent. Because the components of the solar panels actually come from the continent, then it's made elsewhere and becomes more expensive and uh, unsustainable financially uh, for the communities. So we need to uh, really develop that value chain domestically. I think what I see from his question and, and Bokolo's response is uh, maybe uh, actors trying to find a shortcut to achieving um, desired impact which can't work because behavior change needs uh, needs to work in a certain way. You're not going to hide uh, prices and then create, stimulate demand, artificial demand. That is not sustainable and it has happened before. Even in Uganda with improved cook stocks, uh, creating an artificial demand for cheap stocks, there is no demand for that. And in the long run, you're not doing anything. So I think we have to invest in behavior change. People must, uh, behavior need to change, and that is long term now. But with these projects that are looking at really short term timelines and trying to um, uh, create impact in a year or two or three, it can't work with climate change adaptation.
Thanks a lot. Okay, so I think we reached an end. So please join me to thank all our speakers. <laughs>